Father, we're thankful for the routines of worship. Uh, we're mindful of the fact that it's something Jesus himself partook of, uh, Sabbath after Sabbath, uh, in synagogues and at the temple. And so, Father, this is a part of our weekly routine. Would you teach us and speak to us in ways that change us and ways that we need? We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, we are studying the book of Jonah, and if you're discovering that for the first time, then you haven't been here for a long time. <laughs> Today we come to the last chapter, and uh, it's the final installment of this story that we've been looking at. Uh, just like in any musical composition, uh, parts of it have harmony, parts of it have dissonance. So too in this book, there's harmony and dissonance going on. Uh, throughout this book, God again and again and again has been merciful and he has shown grace. He showed grace to the sailors uh, from Tarshish. He's showing grace to the Ninevites. He has certainly shown grace to Jonah. God keeps showing mercy and giving people exactly exactly what they do not deserve. And here in the climax of the story, that theme continues. But the ending has this very dissonant twist, if you've ever read or read ahead in this book. When God is gracious to Jonah, Jonah celebrates that. In fact, he really appreciates that God has been gracious to him. But when God is gracious to the Ninevites, <laughs> he's not too happy about that grace. Jonah is not okay with God's grace being shown to the Ninevites. And that's what we're going to get to in just a moment. In this story, uh, really like all good stories, or for that matter, like real life, there is a problem. And the problem here is the problem of evil. Uh, this is a word that occurs multiple times throughout this book. There's something wrong with the world that has been made by God. And God tells Jonah to go preach against Nineveh back in chapter 1 because it's evil or it's wickedness, as some translations uh, translate it, but the word is evil. It's evil has come up before me, God says. And that's dissonance. That is disharmony. Something is off. Something is wrong with God's world. There is sin, there's violence, there's evil, there are lost people in it, and God is going to do something about that. He is, in fact, angry at sin, as God should be. Sin is ugly and awful. God is um, angry at injustice and at violence and the oppression that is happening through the Ninevites. But the other part of this, the surprising part, in fact, is God's concern for Nineveh, he loves the oppressed people, but he also, in fact, loves the oppressor. And that's surprising. That's shocking. And so God decides to act. Now, uh, there is a harmony word that keeps recurring in this story, and we've noted it a number of times. That is the word great. We saw this at the beginning of Jonah. There's harmony and dissonance, remember. God says, the evil of Nineveh has come up before me, so go to that, he says, great city. And Jonah does, in fact, the opposite. He runs away from where God is sending him. And so what does God do? Well, God sends a great storm, we are told. Uh, and that is caused, of course, by a great wind. And then this ship that Jonah is on, which is headed for Tarshish, the opposite direction of Nineveh is threatened. 
And we're told that the sailors on that ship cast lots to see who is responsible for this evil. Jonah chapter 1 verse 7. And again, this is a recurring theme throughout the book, the problem of evil. So now there's evil again, only this time the evil does not occur because of Nineveh or because of the pagans or because of the unbelievers or the Gentiles. The sailors cast lots to see who is responsible and the lot points in one direction. Points to Jonah. It's Jonah's disobedience that prompted God to send the great wind and the great storm. Evil is present. Only this time it's because of Jonah. It's because of the man of God. Now, any Israelite who would have read this book in, in any century, this is dissonance right here. Caused not by the pagans, not by the unbelievers, not by the Gentiles, but by God's prophet. And that is surprising. There's a lot of surprise in this story. It's not only surprising, it's bad. The story continues. Jonah cries out to God from the belly of a great fish and God forgives Jonah's disobedience. God saves Jonah's life. God resolves the dissonance by using vomit. We talked about that. You'll have to go listen to that week. But, uh, and now things seem to be resolved. There seems to be harmony again uh, in this book. And then Jonah goes to Nineveh. But it's pretty clear from the summary that Jonah does not really want to go to Nineveh for, Nineveh for one major reason. And that is Jonah does not like the Ninevites. And he preaches this message uh, we talked about last week. Jonah walks around in Nineveh saying 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. That's his message. That's the totality of his message. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. Uh, not a lot of details there. Not at all. Kind of vague. There's no mention of God. There's no talk about God's character. Uh, there's no talk about the sin or the injustice or the specifics of Nineveh's uh, sins. There's no talk even about repentance or about forgiveness or about mercy. None of that. It seems like Jonah is just kind of putting no effort into this whatsoever, sort of phoning it in, right? In 40 days, Nineveh is going to be overthrown. That's it. But another surprise happens. The people hearing this message, they listen. They respond. Now, you think about this from Jonah's perspective. Uh, Jonah has not brought his A game to the revival, so to speak. Uh, this is pretty lame, this message. Eight words in total. Uh, but people's hearts get broken. Their consciences are convicted because the spirit of God is at work. That's what's going on here. Something miraculous. And there is this national response that occurs, national repentance. And it is so widespread, we are told that from the king right down to the poorest and the weakest uh, citizen in the city, they all repent. Even the animals are brought into this repentance. Remember, they too wear sackcloth, just like all of the people. And the point of the story is that the people of Nineveh are overwhelmed by a personal awareness, a collective awareness of their sins. And it's not because Jonah gave this eloquent message, not at all. It's just God working miraculously. The people say, God, you're right. We have been wicked. We have acted evilly. We've been way off track. We've been so wrong and they repent the best they know how. And God looks at this poor, miserable people, spiritually speaking, and he has compassion on them. 
We're told later on when God talks about or describes Nineveh, this is in chapter four, we'll get to that. We're told that this is a people who do not know their right from their left. That's how God describes them. And by that, he, he's not, God isn't saying these are stupid people. He's not saying that. He's simply saying they don't know right from wrong. They don't know up from down, morally speaking. That's what God is getting at in that description. And so when they turn from their evil way, it says, and, and there's that word again, God sees this and he relents, he has compassion, he shows them grace. And so now there's harmony again in the story. Uh, they have, they've turned away from their violence and their aggression and their sin. They've called it what it is and they're repenting of it. And now the story could end here and it would be a happy ending. Done, the end, great, this is good. Everything is harmonious again. Almost sounds like a fairy tale ending at that point. But the problem is it doesn't end there. There's yet another problem. And it's a problem of evil. And so if you open your Bibles, if you've got them with you, Jonah chapter four, we're gonna read this chapter, uh, verse one. And you can follow along in the screen if you like. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O oh Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, have you any right to be angry? Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city, and there he made himself a shelter sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. And then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head, to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind. And the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, I, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. I am angry enough to die. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? Jonah is mad. Jonah is upset. And this is yet another surprise in this short little book. You would think he would be thrilled at this point. This is the greatest spiritual achievement of his ministry. A great city of Assyrians turning from their sin. Jonah has never been used by God like this. But Jonah, it says, was greatly displeased and became angry. He looks at Nineveh repenting and being forgiven by God. And this is a great evil to Jonah. Jonah was okay when grace was being given to him, but now it's going to Nineveh. Jonah's not okay with that. Jonah is ticked 
Jonah is greatly displeased. At the start of the book, any Israelite reading it would think, you know, God's big problem here is obvious. It's Nineveh. It's these pagans. It's these Gentiles. It's Sin City over there. What is he going to do about this problem, this problem of Nineveh? But now we see that that's not God's problem any longer. God's big problem is Jonah. (laughs) It's Jonah now. Uh, What is God going to do about his own prophet, his own people, if you will, who have these smug, superior, resentful, self-righteous hearts? That's now the really big problem. And the problem that this book ends with is this problem. And now for the second time in the story, Jonah prays. You remember his first prayer uh, when he was desperate. He was thrown over, uh, overboard uh, from the boat and he goes into the water and he descends down, 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 down. And he's, he's in the water and then he's in the fish. A great fish is provided who swallows him and it looks like he's going to die, but he actually wants to live. And this is what he says to the Lord. He says, when my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. And what did God do? God heard his prayer and answered it and gave him grace. Jonah said uh, in the belly of that great fish, he said, salvation comes from the Lord. He knew that to be true. He had experienced that personally. God had saved his life. But now God gives grace to Nineveh and he does that through Jonah, his prophet, And we read this, it says, he prayed to the Lord. Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, oh Lord, take away my life for it is better for me to die than to to live. What a prayer. Almost unbelievable. The first time Jonah is going to die, he prays, I remembered you, Lord. And God answers his prayer and saves his life. And now he's in the middle of this amazing, you could say spiritual triumph of life. And he prays, God, let me die. And God answers his prayer by saying, no, you're not going to die. And Jonah wants to die because Hear this, something he thinks he's got to have. Something that matters more to him even than God himself. Is this sense, is this knowledge that Israel, the people of God are special. The people of God are good. And God will punish Israel's enemies. This is kind of a package concept for Jonah. And it's vitally important to him. The point is, you see, to a greater or to a lesser degree, Jonah actually believed that Israel, God's special people, God's gooder people than all other peoples, uh, Israel deserves the grace of God. That's this underlying tension in the book. Israel deserves the grace of God. And oh yeah, by the way, Nineveh does not. And that's a precious belief to Jonah. It's part of the undertow of why he thinks what he thinks and does what he does. Jonah says, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. 
a God who relents from sending calamity. And of course, he's quoting there uh, the most famous declaration of God's identity in the history of the nation of Israel. And this is from Exodus 34 when Moses is on Mount Sinai and he's conversing with God and God is giving him the Ten Commandments. And uh, Moses says to God on that occasion, now show me your glory, he requests. And, and God says, okay. And you, you remember he puts him in a kind of a cleft of a rock there. And in Exodus 34, it says, and he, God, passed in front of Moses proclaiming, this is what God proclaims to Moses when he shows him his glory. He says, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Sound familiar? You see, God is revealing here who he is. God is letting Moses see his heart See his character. And this description of God is a sacred description to Israel. Every devout Jew knew these words. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. They knew these words like we could all, we could all sing together the happy birthday song. That's how familiar these words were to any devout Israelite. And that's what Jonah quotes, only Jonah leaves something out when he quotes this passage. Every Israelite would have noticed this. It would have been a glaring omission. And by leaving this out, Jonah's actually accusing God. Let me show you what I mean. In Exodus 34, 6, this is where God is saying, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And then it goes on to say this, maintaining love to thousands. And forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet, and this is the part he's leaving out, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. In other words, when children follow in the sinful ways of their parents, God will bring punishment. God will judge the wicked. You see, Jonah leaves that whole part out. And everybody knows what's going on here. Jonah is impugning the character of God. What he's saying is, oh yeah, grace, sure, abounding in grace. But what about justice, God? You're supposed to do justice too. You said you were going to punish evil. You say you will destroy our enemies. That's what you promised us. I told them 40 days, Nineveh, and then it's Sodom and Gomorrah time, right? It's hell, fire, and brimstone. Now that's not going to happen. I hate the Ninevites, God. You should too. That's what Jonah is saying. There's a Christian author who makes a very very wise observation. She says, you can tell you have made God in your own image when it turns out he hates all the same people you do. That's <laughs> so what's going on here. God is incredibly patient with Jonah throughout this book, but especially now, it's just amazing. Uh, he just asked Jonah a question and I would note the gentleness of this. I mean, I wouldn't have been surprised if it had been fire and brimstone now for Jonah, but it's not. God just says, have you any right to be angry? And Jonah doesn't give an answer. He actually gives God the silent treatment on this. 
In the next part of the story, we are told that Jonah went out and he sat down at a place east of the city and he makes himself a shelter and uh, he waits to see what happens. And here's what's going on with that. You see, Jonah is still hoping that after this 40 days passes, Nineveh is still going to get blasted. Maybe this repentance is short-lived. You see, this is this, is this hope, this underlying uh, premise for, for Jonah that Nineveh needs to receive justice. And then there's this other odd little story. Uh, we read it. And as we read it, you may have wondered. It says, uh, then the Lord provided, hang on to that word. The Lord provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. That word provided uh, is a recurring word in this book. It's the same word that back in the first chapter, it says that God provided a great fish uh, in order to save Jonah. And Jonah was, of course, uh, happy about what God provided in that instance. Here it says, and Jonah was very happy about the vine. And we'll come back to that in a moment. But, but at dawn the next day, it says the Lord provided, the same word again, a worm. That seems like kind of a dirty little trick, just a little bit. But he provided a worm, which it says, which chewed the vine so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind. And the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die. And he said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you have a right to be angry about the vine? And I suspect it didn't take Jonah long to answer. I do, I do, he says. I am angry enough to die. Any of that seem a little immature to any of you? It's almost like God is dealing with a five-year-old here. And sometimes, to any degree that we're blind to our own sins, uh, we're acting like five-year-olds. You understand there's something going on that's way, way deeper than Jonah worrying about sunburn or heat stroke. What's happening here is God is endeavoring to save Jonah. That's what's going on. That's what's been going on since chapter one. That's why God provided a great fish to save Jonah. That's why God provided a vine to save Jonah. That's also why God provided a worm. That's also why God provided a scorching east wind. All things Jonah desperately needed, God knew he needed them, but didn't necessarily want. All things necessary to save Jonah. Jonah is in this boiling sun, and then God does this unexpected thing, and Jonah is mad. Jonah is mad about Nineveh, mad about the scorching sun, and God sends him this shade plant, which is actually full of meaning for Jonah in this particular moment. In the Old Testament, there is this recurring image of God being someone who would shade his people, protect his people. In Psalm 121, we read this, he who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. And the sun will not harm you by day, nor 
the moon by night. In Isaiah chapter 4, there's this, another one of these descriptions of God this way. It says, Then the Lord will create over all of Mount Zion and over those who assemble there a cloud of smoke by day and a glow of flaming fire by night. Over all the glory will be a canopy. It will be a shelter and shade. The two things happening there in Jonah. It will be a shelter and shade from the heat of the day and a refuge and a hiding place from the storm and the rain. It will save you. It is God. The point is, a number of times in the Old Testament, you get this image of God shading his people. Uh, shade is good. Shade means uh, to be under the protection, the care, the provision of God. Protection from what? Well, specifically your enemies, whatever's going to kill you. God is your protector. He will shade you. And in fact, the phrase uh, here in Jonah chapter 4, verse 6, that says that the vine was to ease Jonah's discomfort, literally in Hebrew it says it was to deliver him from evil. Does that sound familiar? That's something we pray, something Jesus taught us to pray, is it not? God was delivering Jonah from his evil. The point is, this whole vine thing, as weird as it is to us, it's actually a little drama. It's an object lesson. It's meant to deliver Jonah from his evil, his own evil, the very thing that's killing him and keeping him at a distance from God. Jonah thought he knew where the evil was. It's out there. It's over there in Nineveh. Those people who weren't like him, those people who didn't love him and who he did not love. You see, that's why Jonah is very happy about the vine in this story. It's going to protect him. It's going to keep him shaded, hopefully until he sees justice done on his enemies. When the plant goes up, literally what the text says is, and Jonah rejoiced in the vine with great joy. See, to Jonah, it's not just about physical comfort. To Jonah, when the plant goes up, it's a hopeful sign that God cares for him. God cares for Israel. God always cares for his people. It's a hopeful sign to Jonah that God, while he cares for Israel, is going to get, do justice to Nineveh. And that's part of why Jonah rejoices in the vine with great joy. He's hopeful He's rejoicing in the destruction of the people that he hates. Nineveh is going down, or so he hopes. It's a funny thing. Jonah received grace when he was at the very bottom, when he was descending down, down, down. God provided a great fish. Now he's offended by grace when it's shown to someone he doesn't like, someone he doesn't think deserves it. Hold on to that idea, this idea of deserving grace. It's a big, big problem. It was then. It was for Jonah. It is here. It's a problem for us. You see, Jonah has this superior, judgmental, unloving heart. And Jonah is, of course, one of God's covenant children. He's got the promises of God that have been given to him. And it's almost like Jonah actually thinks he deserves God's grace. But the Ninevites do not. You know, when Jesus was ministering here on earth, the people that Jesus had the hardest time with were not the people that everybody considered the big sinners. 
Uh, he didn't have much of a problem with prostitutes or tax collectors or the sick and the lame who, remember in Jesus' day, many people, most people, in fact, thought that if you were sick or you were lame or you were born blind, well, you were getting something you deserved. Obviously, there had been some sin in your life or sin in the lives of your parents. And, and the reason you have this hardship, this difficulty, this judgment of God on you is because of your sin. Uh, the lepers, lawbreakers, these are, these are people, of course, who were big sinners. They were not the people that you'd, uh, these are the people you would think would be, you know, equivalent to the Ninevites. Bad people. The people Jesus had the hardest time with, however, were people who considered themselves to be morally superior, upstanding, spiritually mature. They had these superior, judgmental, unloving, unforgiving, uncaring hearts. And they didn't want to listen to Jesus. And it's an odd thing. But very often it seems that religious people develop attitudes of superiority and judgment instead of humble hearts, which is what you think would be developed in us. Religious people want bad people to get what they deserve. Get them, God. Show them how wrong they are. Get them. They want bad people to get their desserts. And they want good people to get their desserts as well. And they deserve, of course, grace, right? Now, the truth be told, as I reflected on this and thought about it, thought about preaching this, I came to realize there's a good bit of Jonah in me. I've noticed that I can put people into categories that kind of let me dismiss them. Categories that I gain a spirit of, yeah, God, let them have it. Look how sinful that is. You know, when somebody else does something wrong, like they vote differently than me, <laughs> or they wear a mask and I'm not, or they don't wear a mask and I am, or they won't get vaccinated, but I did. Or they do get vaccinated, but I didn't. They hold opinions or views that I don't hold or that I don't like. That's wrong. Are we clear about that? That's wrong. And people like that, they deserve what's coming to them. They deserve justice. They deserve the judgment of God. Me and Jonah, we deserve mercy. We've already seen that, that Jonah wasn't very aware of his own sin. Not deeply, not so much. And I would observe here that the sins that he was aware of, even as he dealt with God, like running away from God, uh, that, that sin he made an excuse for. Jonah chapter four, verse two, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. God, the reason I had to run was you. <laughs> Truth be told, I can hate people just like Jonah did. 
And I can excuse my sin just like Jonah did. And I can think I deserve grace while others deserve justice just like Jonah did. And this, you see, friends, really is the great evil in the book of Jonah. It's why, the fact, it's why in fact, the book was written. And God challenges us just like he challenges Jonah. And what's so interesting to me, he does it so graciously and so gently. He does it with questions. You'll notice when God uh, is talking to Jonah, Jonah is quite ticked off uh, about the plant dying uh, and about Nineveh not. <laughs> and God just asks him questions. Jonah 4.4, have you any right to be angry? And what's the answer? No, you have no right to be angry. He says, do you, do you have a right to be angry about the vine? And the, the answer is no, of course not. God says to Jonah, you have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh, Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left. And many cattle as well. I love that throw in line there. God doesn't just care about people. He likes cattle too. I don't know if he likes them the same, but you know, he likes them both. So there you go. And then God ends this book with a question. Should I not be concerned about that great city? And there's that word again, great. And then it's like story over, mic drop, boom, right? Dissonance. Dissonance designed to make Jonah and us think. And that's the climax of the story. Should I not be concerned about that great city? God is saying, Jonah, Jonah, you're definitely concerned about your own little life. You are concerned about your people, the people of Israel, the people you think are special because of something in them. You're concerned about your comfort. You're concerned about your shade, even though you don't deserve it. But you want Nineveh to get justice. And if it's right for you to be concerned about your people, people who are in fact sinners, Jonah, people who are not more special than any other people except for the grace and mercy that I have given them, people like you, Jonah, tribal people, us versus them people, self-righteous people, people who desperately, desperately need grace, grace they don't deserve. Isn't it right then for me to be concerned about all people? All people. People whose politics is different than ours. People whose sexual preferences are different than ours. People who just oppose us on every front with regards to what is right or what is wrong. It's hard, isn't it, to accept the fact that God loves those people. God cares about those people. Isn't it right then for me to be concerned about all people? Shouldn't we want grace to come to everybody everywhere? And therein is the problem. I find in myself, I, I don't necessarily want grace to be shown to everybody everywhere. I mean, I deserve grace, but not everybody, not everywhere. 
You know, when we read this, we want to find out what Jonah's response is. What's he going to say? What's he going to do with this? Uh, does he ever come around? Does he ever see his own sin? And we never find out. The story just ends with Jonah sitting there in silence. It kind of drives me crazy that it ends this way. That's a crummy ending. Why would the writer do that? Why would you end such a great story with such an unresolved chord? Well, maybe it's the same reason Jesus did it. He did it more than once. Some of his most memorable stories ended this way. Think about the story of the prodigal son. It's actually the same story. It's just different characters. It's all it is. There's a father who has great love for his two sons. There's a younger son, you remember, the rebellious son, the wicked son who goes off, takes his inheritance, squanders it uh, in really immoral living, uh, and then eventually uh, loses everything, can't even feed himself, decides to go home, and in the process, he repents. He sees his own sin. And then there's the older brother who thinks that he has always been obedient to his father. He is sure that he deserves the father's blessing, but he's full of resentment. He's full of anger. And he wants his younger brother to get what he deserves, which is justice. Sound familiar? It's exactly the same story. And Jesus concludes this story of the prodigal son and the lost older brother by having the father talk to the older brother, kind of like God is talking to Jonah. And the father says, you know, you've always been with me, but this brother of yours was lost and is found, was dead and has now been made alive. And the implied question is, should I not be concerned about your brother too? Have you any right to be angry? Should we not celebrate? And we never find out how the older brother responds in this. We're just left with the older son just reflecting on what the father said. And why would Jesus tell a story like that with an ending like that? Couldn't he think of a better ending? I bet he could. But he ends it this way because the point of the story is not that Jonah or the older brother has a decision to make. The point of these stories is that the reader you, me, we have a decision to make. The tension with the way both these stories end means the stories are unresolved. It's up to us to resolve them. We have to work out the tension that's in us as we wrestle with these stories. It means we have to process the questions that we see raised with Jonah. I mean, for example, do we think we deserve the grace of God? I bet if you examine yourselves, you do. You're certainly better than the person you came with. Am I right? <laughs> I mean, you deserve God's grace way more than he or she does, right? But think about the sin in that. Wow. Wow. Do we understand the depth of our own sin, our callousness, our hard hearts, our us versus them mentality? Do we appreciate the depth of God's grace toward us? Do we take his grace for granted? Do we want his grace to be extended to others? Here's one. Here's a question. Do I personally seek to share his grace with other people? Here is what God has done for me and I don't deserve it. 
do we seek to share that grace? You see, all of these questions and so many more are implied when God asks Jonah, should I not be concerned about that great city? It's a loaded question. It's a haunting question. Because when I ask these questions of myself, I am guilty. Tim Keller has a little book on Jonah. Highly recommend it to you. It's a great book. Way better than the series I've just preached on it. But uh, he points out that Jonah did not weep over the city. But Jesus, the true prophet, did. In fact, he writes this, and I just want to end this message with this. uh, it's It's a long quote, but boy, I think it's very powerful. And it helps us to, it points us to the nature of the heart, the character of our God. Let, let me read this. It says, Jesus was riding into Jerusalem <coughs> on the last week of his life. I think about this. He knew he would suffer at the hands of the leaders and the mob of this city, but instead of being full of wrath or absorbed with self-pity, like Jonah, when he saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you even you had only known on this day what would bring you peace. You see, they don't know their right hand from the left. You know, we don't know our right hand from our left. If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now it is hidden from your eyes because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. On the cross, Jesus cried out, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Think about that. Jesus is saying, Father, they are torturing and killing me. They are denying and betraying me, but none of them, not even the Pharisees, really completely understand what they are doing. We can only look and wonder on such a heart. He does not say they are not guilty of wrongdoing. They are. And that is why they need forgiveness. And yet Jesus is also remembering that they are confused, clueless, and not really able to recognize the horror of what they are doing. Here is a perfect heart. Perfect in generous love, not excusing, not harshly condemning. He is the weeping God of Jonah 4 in human form. This is the point of the book of Jonah. We need a prophet better than Jonah. (laughs) But we do need a prophet. Jesus is the prophet Jonah should have been. Yet, of course, he is infinitely more than that. Jesus did not merely weep for us. He died for us. Jonah went outside the city hoping to witness its condemnation. But Jesus went outside the city to die on a cross to accomplish our salvation. Amen. You see, that's the Savior we follow. A prophet not like Jonah. A prophet who was weeping, but not just weeping for the city. A prophet who laid down his life to give us what we do not deserve. The grace of God. And that's who the book of Jonah begs us to consider. This God, this great God. Who provides what we need, but not always what we want, right? In order to save us. Pray with me. Father, 
We thank you for this little book. We found it challenging on so many different levels. Most of all, God, we're thankful for this book because it points us to Jesus Christ. The sign of Jonah points us to Jesus Christ. Who he is, what he's done, how he loves us, how he forgives us. Thank you that he didn't just weep for us. Thank you that he died for us. Thank you, thank you, thank you, God, that you give us what we do not deserve. Help us to be a people, Lord, that can do exactly that for others. Give them what they do not deserve, and in so doing, point them to the love, the mercy, the grace, the goodness of Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.